What's up, guys? You're listening to The Quest, a podcast that inspires founders and creators to seek eternal growth. I'm Justin Kahn, co-founder of Twitch and partner at Goat Capital. Every week, I sit down with icons and trailblazers from tech, Hollywood, sports, music, and more to uncover their human stories and bring you lessons in finding meaning and happiness beyond success. It's often easy to talk about winning, but I'm here to share the difficult stories that are often left out of the spotlight. I ask the questions nobody else asks, and you'll get the answers you won't hear anywhere else. You've heard me talk about it before, but if you're an entrepreneur or creative that needs to get more things done, then you're gonna love Magic Mind. I love Magic Mind because it tastes great, gives you consistent energy throughout the day, helps you relax through adaptogens, nootropics that keep you focused, and just generally makes me feel great. If you wanna try it out, you can check it out with the code Justin20 at magicmind.co. What's up, guys? It's Justin. Welcome to The Quest. Today, I'm incredibly excited. My guest is Henry Shuck, who is the CEO and co-founder of ZoomInfo, uh, which is a data and intelligence, business intelligence company that serves over 20,000 companies worldwide. I think that's right, 20,000, 25,000. Right? 25,000, there we go. Up, updated the website, <laughs> 25,000. It's incredible. Um, I want to get into the story of how he started this company, but it's grown to be a you know, incredibly big company, $29 billion market cap today. And so um, Henry and I first connected on Twitter, right? Yep. We connected on Twitter because I launched a video about how I had imposter syndrome and you responded. You know, it's funny because it was a perfect example of this where you responded like, I've struggled with imposter syndrome my whole life. And for me, I was like, Oh my God, how could that be possible? This, <laughs> this guy's so much more successful. <laughs> Which is, that's the, that's, you know, the human condition. That's the lemma, right? Totally. Yeah. Uh, so I'd love to get into that, but first let's, let's just start with the story. Cause I think it's, you have an amazing story of creating this company. Um, tell me like, how did you get into entrepreneurship? Yeah. yeah. So, um, I went to college. Well, if I back up right before that, I went to college at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Right before I left, my mom gave me what was the remnants of a life insurance policy that she had been putting dollars in since I was, you know, a kid. Yeah. It was five thousand dollars, and she was like, "Here you go. This is your college fund." Yeah. Like, okay, great. So I took it off, took a bunch of loans. After my first year in college, was out of money and needed to find a job. So. Went on the UNLV job board, applied to a bunch of stuff, applied to a bunch of stuff uh, on the strip. I wanted to work at the MGM Grand or I was applying to be a bank teller. And I got a call back uh, from this small software company, data and software company. It was, and when I say small, it was the owner and one other person. Yeah. The other person was leaving. So he needed a replacement. It was 12 bucks an hour, which was higher than anything else I was looking at. Okay, I'll take this job. So I took this job and I really took it thinking like, okay, I'm going to take it, pay off my credit card bills, pay for rent in the summer. And if the MGM calls, then I'm going to go take that job as soon as like that comes up. Yeah. And took the job, me and the co-founder or me and the founder. And we were in like a room that was maybe a hundred square feet. And he was across from me and he was selling online subscriptions to this data platform. And he was selling it to technology companies. And it was a little lifestyle business doing about $300,000 in revenue. And over the next four years, we grew it from 300,000 to about 5 million in, wow. in revenue. So pretty like, and in those days, there wasn't much in the way of SaaS. This is 2001. Yeah. And, uh, and so we saw the business grow from a revenue perspective, but we weren't investing in the business. So by the time it got to 5 million, it was like six people. Yeah, he's like, this is great. Just taking money out of the- Loved yeah. it, yeah. yeah. He was working, the last year he told me, he goes, look, I made enough money that I don't have to work anymore. I like passed my financial goals, but like money is pouring in the door here. And so I'd be a fool to not just like come in and collect it. But I'm working 12 hours a day. There's not much of a business here. And I was going to law school at this point. I had applied, I gotten into law school. And the business was going well. And he said, well, will you be, wh why don't you be CEO of the business? Yeah. And I'll make you the CEO and I want to make you a millionaire in the next two years. And I was like, well, what does CEO mean? And he said, well, you know, I'll still make all the decisions. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> but you'll be the CEO and you'll make a bunch of money. And for whatever reason, I'm 21 at this time. For whatever reason, I always imagined I was going to do really well financially yeah. in my life. Um, and I probably didn't have really anything to base that off of. <laughs> I, my mom was a single mom. She worked three jobs. Um, I went to like a public university. So it wasn't like I was like set up to be super successful. But in my brain, I just thought like, I'm going to make a bunch of money. So I need to be in a role that I can feel like proud of. Yeah. And that's actually the big reason why I went to law school, because I thought lawyers were people you had like instant respect for and right. had a, you know, meaningful place in society. And I wanted that. I wanted the attachment to that. And the CEO role, especially in the fake CEO role, wasn't going to do it for me. So I left and I went to law school. Um, and then one year in, a friend who I had recruited at that company, it was called iProfile, called me and said, hey, I want to start something like this, but I don't know what to do. And you knew everything about how, how to operate this business. Damn. Will you start it with me? And I said, no, <laughs> I was in the last few weeks of my finals in law school and I was doing well in law school. And I said, look, I'm not really interested in this, but if you're really serious about it, call me in three weeks and I'll help you. Maybe I'll be a consultant or something. Yeah. And he called me three weeks later. It was one of those things where he's one of my friends who's just kind of like has an idea and then like a week later is not really interested in it anymore. Yeah. But he called me three weeks later and was like, hey, I'm still interested. Will you do this with me? And it's like, okay, sure. He's like, we'll be 50-50 partners. I said, okay, the only way I'll do it, I was in Ohio. He was in Las Vegas. The only way I'll do it, you quit your job and you move across the country and live in Columbus with me to start it. Right. That's like the, the purity test. It's like, <laughs> if you're willing to do this, then I'm, I'm in. A hundred percent. It was yeah. like, here's one more big speed <laughs> in front of you. If you're really serious about this you'll you'll do this and he did he rented a penske truck put his car on it put all the stuff in the truck and he moved to columbus so i left my law i was working at a law firm in the summer i left that job i moved all my classes to the evenings and so i would start law school at three and i would finish at 10 and it was like i took whatever class it was like law and social science yeah law and you know latin america just whatever classes fit um and then we started the company uh in my in the in the law school apartment, it's two thousand seven. I put twenty five thousand dollars on my credit card. He put twenty five thousand dollars on his credit card. Actually, borrowed like ten grand from his grandfather, and we started the company. Wow! And we kind of just ran a playbook that we understood from the last company. So you had an idea of what worked with the last company, which was like businesses wanted a certain kind of data and. You said we could recreate something similar to this. Was there something different or were you just like, okay, this is the playbook we want to do? Yeah, well, do there was this. a little different. We focused on a different market because yeah. in our mind, this is what's amazing when I look back. We were like printing money. At yeah. profile. People would call. They'd send a $20,000 check that afternoon. And it was like a fax machine too. So the <laughs> fax machine was like always going with orders. That's amazing. Um, and we, so we were like, oh, this company just like owns the market. You know, look, like we're today on an $800 million run rate and back or about $800 million run rate. Back then it was a $5 million business. And in my mind, you're 21. Yeah. They own the world. Yeah. Like there was just no other companies who we were going to be able to find if we did exactly the same thing. So we took a little bit of a spin on it, focused on a different market. We were actually at iProfile in he didn't love the annual subscription model, the online annual subscription platform. Yeah. So I was sending CDs out, like printing a label, putting the company's name, and then sending out a CD. Yeah. And we said, okay, we're going to do it all online. It's going to be all annual subscription. It's going to be focused on a different market. And we got out there and like, surprisingly enough, we didn't really see iProfile very often. Hmm. And so you just had this like big mind shift where you realize, oh, it's this massive market. We're not even going to bump into these guys for the, you know, for the foreseeable future. Yeah. And let's build a real business. And so let's really invest behind it. So the first the first uh, few years, we paid ourselves $2,000 a month. Actually, I graduated law school. I was still making $2,000 a month. Um, and we put all the money back into the business, hiring people, building out the platform. 
building out a go-to-market motion. How did how did you know to do that, right? Because you saw this like former boss you had who was just getting rich, like pulling out money. Like, how did you know I want to reinvest into this? So my former boss, his brother was a venture capitalist. Yeah. And this business was taking off. And kind of two years in, we met up with his brother in Las Vegas, who's like passing through. And I went and I met him and we were, we're at this bar at the Caesars palace. And, um, his brother goes, Hey, here's what I don't understand. This business is growing. It continues to grow. You're not even like really doing anything and it's growing. Why are you not investing more resources into it? Like you should just be investing resources into this business. And my boss at the time goes, ah, he's just a, one of those venture capital guys. He doesn't really understand how businesses work. But it stuck with me. I mean, we're 20, almost 20 years removed from that conversation. Yeah. And I never forgot it. It was like, it, it, his brother made it feel like you were neglecting the business. Yeah. And so when we, when we founded what was called Discover Org at the time, we changed the name to Zoom Info. But when we founded it, I, you know, I told myself, like, I'm never going to feel like that about this business. I'm never going to feel like we're not investing back into it. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's so funny. That's like a one moment that like changed your life, right? Like getting this job in software instead of working at MGM. Yeah, totally. That's one. And then having that conversation, that's an incredible. It is an incredible, uh, and, and you know, there are other things too, like we were annual, the annual subscription business model yeah. is today. It's like you wouldn't start a software business that didn't have some kind of annual subscription model. Yeah. Back then it was pretty new and I didn't know what it was. Like I didn't know what an annual subscription was, but starting a business that way with that model just creates all sorts of longevity to yeah. the business. And so I got lucky to be at that company, understand the business model and then go off. An interesting thing about that company, one of the ways that we did research on businesses, which is also going to sound crazy, but we would order annual reports. So back then you could just like send a message to a company or call them and say, please send me your annual report. Yeah. So I had stacks of annual reports at the office that I would read through to find like key information about companies. They might say that they're doing an ERP implementation or they just hired a new chief information officer. And so by the time I was ready for law school, I had read hundreds of these annual reports. It was like a crash course in business yeah. and how people talked about their companies and what was important, what was not. So in conjunction with getting a business degree, I was reading like large company annual reports. And so really like by the time I was 21, I felt like I had more business education than just about any other 21 year old yeah. in the world. And so it was just like a good solid foundation to go start a business. Okay, so you start the business and it starts working. You're running this playbook. Like, what were some of the things that didn't go so well? Some of the like the challenges that you yeah. faced building it. So, um, we start the business, and then probably six months in, I stumble across a website of this company called Rain King. The description of what they were doing was exactly what we were doing. Yeah. The only difference was the founder was a longtime data business executive. He had gotten a bunch of venture capital and he had brought together a team of a bunch of like executives, sales executives, a real CTO, a 50 person team. And I remember like sitting in my, my law school apartment and being like, oh my God, like the worst timing ever. Yeah. We just started this business. And again, remember like my, my scope for total addressable market is small. <laughs> so like now these guys are in it. They're way better funded than us. And they're, they brought a bunch of executives. Like, what are we going to do? It's like me yeah. and my buddy from college, like trying to put together this platform with $50,000 of basically yeah. seed investment. And I just remember reading it and being like, we're, in, we're just, they're going to kill us. They're yeah. just going to kill us. So we actually, at that point, said, well, let's see if they'll buy our little business. So we had $300,000 in revenue and my co-founder's cousin was in business. And so we called him we're like, hey, we want to go see if these guys will buy our business. 
we called the founder. They were like, yeah, we're interested. Come down and meet us and let's see if there's an opportunity. So we drove from Columbus to Washington, D.C., met with the founder, pitched the business, and you kind of walked in. By the way, we get there. You walk into a real office, like real people. Yeah. And like the contrast to like the upstairs loft in my <clears throat> law school apartment is just like striking. And all these people working on the platform. And we're like, go in. We do a full day of meetings with their CFO, the CEO, and the head of sales. They take us through a little bit of like how what they're doing. We take them through a little bit of what we're doing. We went into that meeting going, they offer us $2 million. We'll sell this business yeah. today. And I'll go do something else. And they're probably going to kill us anyways. And the end of the meeting, they were like, yeah, probably doesn't make sense for us to buy your business. But why don't we license the process by which you guys collect data? And I was like, no, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, no, let's stay in touch. So we left that meeting and I remember driving home and going like, okay, like we have to beat these guys. Yeah. We have to beat these guys. Like, I don't want to like, and fast forward the story. We ended up buying that company like five years later. Amazing. Um, and really like getting there to that point, one of the key things we figured out at zoom info is really how to build a really efficient go-to-market motion. Yeah. Like how do you find clients? How do you do it in the most efficient way? How do you use systems to architect it? But so anyways, we go back to our law school dorm and we continue to build out the company after that. It's, it's so interesting. People often, I've had that exact same, you know, feeling, um, you know, where where you have these well-funded competitors, it's people who are you know maybe more serious people back them, and you're like, oh my god, we're really out of our depth. We had that with with Twitch. We were you know with Justin TV, we we're competing against this company Ustream, which was like you know they raised like fifty million dollars or something mm -hmm. when we raised five or something like that. And you know we were always worried that they were ahead of us. They were more professional. They had like Jack Dorsey as an advisor and you know stuff like that. And then you know none of that really matters. It turns out. And I've been on the other side too with like Atrium having like raising $75 million and seeing like talking to other startups that had, you know, nothing. Yep. It was like just two guys in a garage and being like, oh, I should buy them or whatever. And then, <laughs> you know, my company, like money doesn't help you find product market fit, right? Totally. It, doesn't, it doesn't help you solve your go-to-market motion. It could actually just make it worse because you're going to hire some, you know, some CRO who's like too fancy, who doesn't want to get his hands dirty and like everything costs more. Yep. And it's really hard to internalize that lesson, but it's such an important lesson for people, you know, especially like new entrepreneurs out there. It's like, if you want to build something, actually being resource constrained can really help you. Can really help you, which yeah. for what it's worth, my boss at iProfile, he was just way, like that was his perspective. <laughs> <You> <laughs> it's know? just a little too much. Yeah, a little yeah. too much. It was yeah. like, yeah, resource constraints, make sure that you're spending your next dollar on the most valuable, in the most valuable way. Yeah. But when you have, 50 most valuable ways to spend that dollar, yeah. you know, getting to 25 probably makes sense, not just $1. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, and you know, today for us, it's a combo. Like I'm looking at smaller companies who now, you know, today, the way you advertise your round, if you're in our space is you say, we raised it to, dis to disrupt Zoom info. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, and it's just yeah. like, it didn't take long, right? Yeah. We found it, well, we found the business in 2007. So, you know, fast forward 14 years and we went from like disruptor to now you're the disruptee. 800 pound gorilla incumbent yeah. that everyone's gunning for. And you make, and like that's, I pay a lot of attention um, to those companies. And I pay attention to see if someone's doing something unique in yeah. the way that they're trying to disrupt us. And oftentimes they say, you know, we've raised $30 million to disrupt Zoom Info, when in reality, they're not disrupting. They're just like copying the exact same thing, but have a different go-to-market motion or yeah. a different pricing model. Those companies I don't get too concerned about. When there's something unique or novel or strategic in the way that they're building their companies, I pay more attention. So how do you keep your edge? You know, like it's gotta be easy. Like you have, how big is Zoom Info now? Like about head about 3,000 employees. All right, so you have 3,000 person company. You're like a huge public company now. Um, you're, you've made it. 
you know, you could retire, you could do anything you wanted to, but to stay, um, like I, I find like one of the hardest things for me is like, I'm always looking for ways to keep my mind plastic and like open to new ideas, open yep. to new things, like trying to learn what's next. And it's so easy to slip into like, no, everything's good. I don't need to do that. You know? Yeah. This is a lot of work. Um, how do you do it? Well, I think first I'm super competitive. Yeah. Um, and probably ultra paranoid. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also really believe that the potential for Zoom Info is much bigger than what it is today. Yeah. And that the only way we're going to get there is to to be super competitive and be really paranoid and be open to new ideas and new areas and watch where the market's going. One of the things I do often, um, probably once a week or maybe a little less than once a week, once every other week, is I'll go into we we acquired a company that does conversation intelligence. So yeah. it records sales calls, it records the videos, then it transcribes it and analyzes it. It's called chorus.ai. And oh, cool. Congrats. Yeah. yeah thank I you. Know. Yeah. So I go in and I'll search for competitor names. Yeah. And I'll listen to what a customer or a prospect, and we record every sales call, every customer call. Yeah. So I can hear how our customers are talking about a competitor. Are they saying good things? Are they saying bad things? How are they being positioned against us? Yeah. Um, and I learn a ton from those conversations and I allocate resources where it's necessary to solve for those things. Like if I hear, for example, I recently heard one of our competitors talks a lot about intent data. Yeah. We sell B2B intent data. Could be anything in your product in, in, for any company, but they lean on this thing. We have, in my opinion, even in my unbiased opinion, the best intent data product. But they don't see us that way. When they look at us, they think about Zoom Info oftentimes as company and contact information. And so that gives me an opportunity when I hear that over and over and over again, that gives me an opportunity to go back, go to product marketing, go to marketing and go, we're missing an opportunity on this thing. We're not branded as an intent company and we're leaving that open for this competitor to come through the door on. And I wouldn't appreciate that yeah. if I didn't hear it Dude, over and over. I love that. Wait, so phone. you're listening. I mean, just to stress that point, you are actively listening to your own sales team's customer conversations through Chorus. Yes. Like regularly. That's amazing. Regularly. Yeah. And by the way, if you really want to ruin your weekend, yeah. like buy Chorus and then listen to customer and prospect calls. Yeah. Because inevitably, we're not doing something the way that I imagine we should be doing it, the yeah. way that we've enabled our sales team to do it. Yeah. And so you get all of these really interesting insights, not just from a competitive perspective or a product perspective, but also from an enablement perspective. Yeah. Like if our salespeople can't answer simple questions about the product or an integration, that's a problem we have to go fix. So that's why I say like, if you want to ruin yeah, your yeah, weekend, yeah. I have a friend who just bought Chorus. He, he, he has about a hundred million dollar revenue company. And I told him that. I was like, you're going to get it. And you're going to ruin like <laughs> yeah. your day when you listen to it. Yeah. And I followed up with me. He's like, you're right. It ruined my day. Yeah. Because no one could ever pitch it as well as you can. Yeah. Right? They never, no one knows your company as well as, well as you. Especially totally. someone yeah, new. A new um, but that's, that's incredible. I'm, I'm very impressed that you are still doing that. It's super. I've never been let down. Yeah. Like I've never spent the time and been like, well, that, that was, was a waste of time. Yeah. I always walk away with like fresh insights about what's happening in the business. Yeah. And I carried it back. Seven first seven years, I sold right alongside everybody else at the company. And and I think that makes me incredibly valuable to the business because yeah. I know how customers respond to things. I know like where to lean, where to not lean. I know what customer conversations are like. I know what renewal conversations are like. Yeah. So I have a lot of empathy for the for the sales and account management teams. But being able to like get right back into it, you have a front row seat yeah. to a competitive call. Like all of a sudden, I don't have to sit through like 10 calls to see like if one of them mentions a, a competitor. I can just listen to 10 calls where competitors are mentioned. Yeah. And I walk away like with all sorts of valuable insights from those conversations. That's pretty cool. Actually, I mean, this is total sad note to usually what we talk about, but the course business must have really benefited from coronavirus, given that like everything's moved to Zoom now. You can yep. just record every call. Totally. And like, yeah, that's incredible. I mean, people are realizing like in, when you sell your products and services, everything is digital now. Yeah. And if you can collect all of those digital touch points, 
and then start making sense of them yeah. and run go to market motions behind them. It's just like endlessly valuable. Yeah. You know, like when I was hiring new salespeople, which I'll talk about that because it was one of the hardest things we did in the business. But when I was hiring and onboarding new salespeople, you know, you would like try to ride along with them. I wrote this big book, like uh, 50 pages, what yeah. to say in every objection, how to run a demo, you know, what to stay away from, yeah. what to highlight, yeah. how to talk about our integrations. Um, and then I would hope for an opportunity to hear a rep like present it poorly, not ask for the next steps, not handle an objection well, yeah. and then have that opportunity to go, look, that's not how you do it. You do it this way or to step in on a call and answer it. With Chorus now, every call is recorded and I can just go to the moments yeah. where like pricing is mentioned or next steps are not talked about or a rep talks 90% of the time on a call. Yeah. Um, and so it just really impacts how quickly you can enable and ramp your sales teams. Do you think the world ever goes back, you know, to to make it harder for Chorus, like to more face-to-face -face in the sales process? I think there will obviously, here's what I really think yeah. is going to happen. First- it will, people will start traveling for work and start getting in-person meetings again. That's going to yeah. happen. And it's going to happen because it's just a strategic advantage to be in the room with somebody yeah. and shake their hand and give them your commitment and build a relationship. Of course, the person who does that, two products equally situated, the person who shows up and shakes their hand and tells you like, I'm committed to our relationship and yeah. builds a in-person relationship is going to have an advantage. Now, almost no meetings will not be a hybrid. Like yeah. It's hard to imagine a meeting where it's just sort of two people in a room talking and there's nobody coming in on Zoom yeah. because you can leverage the rest of your teams. And so my, my expectation is there will be more business travel, but Zoom will be a component of all of those meetings. Yeah. And so you still gain the benefit of having the analytic. Yeah, cool. That's interesting. Um, Okay, so imposter syndrome. What yeah. The, yeah, tell me about your feelings of imposter syndrome and, you know, have they ever gone away if they've, you know, are they persistent? They are persistent. Yeah. They're less persistent over the last uh, kind of two years, but that's like uh, fairly new. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my entire career has always felt like that if somebody just looked a little bit further into the business, that they would realize like, it's really not that great. Yeah. Um, and that I was just in the right place at the right time in the right market. And there wasn't anything unique or special about my abilities that have come to bear on the business. Yeah. And I remember like the first time I talked to my investors about it, or yeah. I came up with investors and they like, laugh like <laughs> yeah. they thought it was like the most hilarious thing yeah that i had this like imposter syndrome that i didn't think i was good enough or that that the success of the business had little to do with me yeah and even in that moment i was like yeah, okay like, yeah. i'm glad you're laughing <laughs> yeah but you don't really like no i think part of it is i'm very focused on the things that are not going well in the business yeah i almost hear no good feedback and i get a lot like People email me and say, like, Zoom Info changed my career or, like, it was the best investment we've ever made. I've been your customer for a decade. Yeah. And it's like, okay, like, yeah. I, in one ear, out the other ear. Somebody tells me something's wrong with our service or we didn't live up to our expectation or whatever it is. I'm, like, insanely focused yeah. on that negative feedback because I think ultimately my job is to fix those yeah. things. And so if you're constantly focused on things that are going wrong in your business, you have a different sense, Yeah, you have a different mindset. Different mindset. It, yeah. I'll tell you uh, this is a funny story. In probably 2013, um, the business is headquartered in Vancouver, Washington. is right outside of Portland. It has a pretty small community. And there was like a local chamber of commerce business networking event. And they asked me to speak at it. And I spoke at it. And then after I met a couple of the entrepreneurs there and one of them was running this like business that was written up in the local press. And, you know, I think in your, your Twitter post, you also talked about this where like when you get written up in the business press, it's not like they talk about the stuff that's not going well in your business. Yeah. They just talk about all the great stuff. Yeah. And so your perception of, 
a business is very different than what's actually happening inside of that business. But here I am, business growing 100% year over year. <laughs> it's like 60% EBITDA margins. Yeah. Um, customers love it. It's high retention. And I remember meeting these uh, this this one entrepreneur and I, like what I said to him, which was what really I felt was, God, it must be nice like running your business, is growing. It's a great business. Like it must be great to be the CEO of your business. And in my head, it was a contrast to my business. It's like, because running my business (laughs) is not so great. Like I'm constantly putting out these fires and the business is a mess. And like, and I was embarrassed of those things, right? Like I'm embarrassed that marketing's not going as well as it was, as as it should have been. I'm embarrassed that the product hasn't uh, evolved as fast as I think it should. I'm embarrassed that I haven't been able to scale the, the sales team. Um, with a complete disregard that other businesses are dealing with the same thing. Yeah. Like com- like every business, in my mind, every business that raised a big round or had some great article written about them, those businesses didn't have the problems that my business had. Yeah, And so I always felt like even though the business is growing, it doesn't have a whole lot to do with me because look at how well these other businesses yeah. are doing. Um. I think over time you realize like every business is struggling with all the same things, especially for founders who have never worked in another company, never worked at another business. Yeah. Then it's really foreign. Like for me, I had worked at this one company, it got to seven employees. And so the stuff that was going wrong in the business, I didn't have context for what other businesses were dealing with. And so I just assume like, this is my fault because it's my business and I've built it this way. And so these things that don't work, they work at other companies. They don't work at this company because of you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's your fault that that retention isn't what it should be, that marketing's not working. Um, and so having some context for the fact that these are issues that are pervasive across every business, every business is trying to solve yeah. the same problems. Even when they solve those problems in a best-in-class way, they're still trying to make them better. Is once I kind of realized that, a little bit of the pressure came off. It's it's so funny because you know you talked about your investor reaction, and I had the exact same reaction just now. It's like I don't think there's something special about me that's like made this business. And at the same time, you just told me that you're spending weekends listening to chorus calls. <laughs> you know, you're the CEO of a $30 million company and you're still listening to like your sales calls of your reps to like see what they can do better. Like that is, you know, people are, are afraid of the guy who's doing that, you know? Yeah. And so I, you know, I think that there's- it's, That's interesting. It's, I hadn't uh, really thought of it yeah, that way. Like people are, like entrepreneurs are- or other companies, their CEOs are trying to go on vacation and like, they're afraid of you. Like yeah. the guy who's like still doing, you know, grinding <laughs> that. Um, I had a friend who's an investor. He told we had this conversation a year ago, maybe less. And I was like, his name's Steve. Steve, I don't, I don't really get it. Like, I don't really think there is something special that I'm doing. Like you see a lot of companies. I don't think there is something unique or special about how I'm running the business that anybody else couldn't just yeah. replicate. And what he told me was, Henry, you wake up every day thinking about everything that's wrong in your business and trying to improve it. And at some point, people make enough money, have enough success that they just don't want to wake up in the morning thinking about those things anymore. They would prefer to like have a calmer life and feel really good about the things that they're doing and not fixate on everything that's broken. It's just easier to not do that. And you don't, you just keep going on these things that are not working. That was like a pretty good, um, I hadn't appreciated that, but can definitely see how you would get into a place where it's like, look, do I really want to wake up every morning and be bogged down on anxiety about the things that are not working out and try to fix those things and push my team, my team who like is performing at levels that in many areas, you've never seen a software company perform. Do I really want to go in every day and go like, yeah, great job, but <laughs> yeah. did you see these five metrics that went in the wrong way this week? What are we doing to address those things? Yeah. And those are really tough conversations to have with your teams who are like, you know, knocking the cover off of the ball. Um, 
which one of the biggest lessons I've learned over the last year is the easiest ways, the easiest way to have that conversation with your team is if they really feel like they're a partner with you. Yeah. And, and what I mean by that is they really believe that you believe that there's nobody else who could do their job mm -hmm. as well as they could. Yeah. That you're not like, Hey, here are these five things you should be doing better. And if you can't do them better, I'm sure I can go find some other person who can. Yeah. They can't feel that way. Yeah. They have to feel like there's nobody else who could do this job as well as you. I believe that. But there's these five things we should fix, right? Let's fix them together. Yeah. And you're supporting them to like fully actualize to their fullest potential. A hundred percent. And like, it's interesting because in our business now, we IPO'd in June of 2020. So a bunch of people made a bunch of money. Yeah. Um, and so now they're all at like self-actualization stage yeah. in their careers. And so I can't like just dictate what <laughs> I want them to do. I, I have influence and I have unlimited amount of time with them. Like I could say, hey, I want to prove this point and get you to see things my way. Block your next week. Yeah. And so I have as much of their time as I want, but I can't just go do this. And they go like, oh, okay, I'll just change everything that yeah. I'm doing for you. So, so much of my job recently has become like communicating better and uh, and influencing more so than just like throwing an idea out that people just capture and run with. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, one of the one of the, the other things I wanted to mention on imposter syndrome is that the point that you made of like you don't have the perspective of like what other people's businesses are like, and you only see the positive things that are happening that people announce is so so true. Like I mean, so many different groups of friends, CEO circles, you know where all these people from the outside, you'd be like, they have the best lives ever. You know, they yeah. have the most incredible lives. I have one friend who, uh, their company went from founding to multiple billion dollar valuation in three years, in the last three years, <laughs> right? Like we drive <laughs> by any, and they're like, you know, tens of millions of re revenue run rate. Like it's real. It's not like a just inflated, you know, yep. they actually have a real business that's doubling every year. And, they struggle for you. They were, they were like, I want to sell this business. I want to quit. It's like not going well. And there were all these circumstances you would never know from the outside yeah. that, that this person felt that way. And it's such a common thing. It's like probably almost every CEO that you know feels that way some of the time. They do, but it takes people like you who like leave the role and then you yeah. start talking about yeah. like the struggles that you went through because usually the CEO running the company is Yeah, not you can't say like, oh like, yeah, yeah, things, yeah. <laughs> things are terrible. I don't yeah. think I'm the right guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so really, but um, it's just like being able to talk about self-doubt yeah. is not a negative thing. No. Like it's okay to sometimes feel like you're not good enough to do the next thing as long as it's balanced with like, but I think I can learn. Yeah. And I think I've built a good enough business that I have the time to learn yeah. the next phase. Um, the truth is like no one, as you, you might think, if you're the CEO of a company, you have investors, you, you might think like, oh, there's someone else who can do it better than me. But if you go and if, or maybe, maybe not you because it's a bias, but if a friend goes and asks every one of those investors, like, who would you rather have be the CEO of this company? They're, they're going to come up empty. It's totally. like, it's so hard to find somebody who's going to be doing that job, you know? Yeah. I mean, they are job. betting on you. Yeah. Like when, when money comes into your company, they are betting on you. The last thing a company really wants to do is go hire a new CEO. And this was actually when the first time we went and raised funding. Um, <clears throat> so the first institutional money that went inside of the company, I went and I was meeting with different venture capital and private equity firms yeah. and this one private equity firm they they went well henry what do you want to do after like after we put this money in like what do you want to do and in my head <laughs> in my head like i want your money right yeah. like i would like there was going to be secondary as part yeah. of this so i was going to we were seven years into the business yeah. and here's this opportunity to monetize some of that work we had taken no money out of the business up to that point the mental gymnastics that i'm doing in that question is like well what does this guy want to hear me say yeah and i don't know like i didn't know he would want to hear me say i want to be ceo of this company forever so i said well 
what do you guys want? Like, I'll do whatever you guys want me to do. Like, are you going to put yeah. that $200 million check into the business? Because if you are, I'll do whatever you want me to do. <laughs> yeah. And so I said that. I said, look, I think I can do anything around this business. I think I'm especially good on the sales and marketing side. And so I'd be happy to carve out a role there. But I'm totally open to what you guys want me to do. And they went, okay, cool. Let's start introducing you to new CEOs. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, yeah. cool. Like you guys are going to, you're just going to write that check, right? Yeah. Like, so they did, they took me out and like, I started meeting with CEOs in the Bay area who would be the, my successor. Yeah. Um, and talk about luck or serendipity or whatever that deal fell apart. Yeah. And we didn't end up taking the dollars. And then we ended up bringing TA Associates, which was our first institutional money into the company. And what I'm so thankful about is that they they never asked that question. Yeah. And they made it clear that they wanted me to be the CEO of the company going forward. The scary thing for me is, had it gone just a little bit differently, yeah. I, I would have never been able to have all of these incredible experiences that I've had at the company. I would have never reached this potential. Yeah. I would have just sold myself short very early on. And so part of that is like, I didn't know what yeah. a good CEO looked like. So they were like, oh, we know these other guys, they've run companies and they could come in and run run Zoom Info. And I was like, yeah, cool. Like, I, what do I know? Like, I just did this for seven years yeah. and got lucky along the way. So if you brought in a professional person, that would be fantastic. I think the lesson is, Nobody knows your business as well as you know your business if you're the founder. And so you just have to believe that you can grow and you can learn. And then, you know, your possibilities are basically endless. Yeah. And you've, you know, empirically, you have gotten it to whatever point, you know, this this big point where you're able to raise money, you're able to like continue growing and hire executives or whatever, even hire a CEO that like a professional CEO, right? Like, like to consider it to your little business. Yeah. yeah. So you have already proven that you can like learn from starting with nothing, right? And, and get there. And I feel like, you know, give yourself credit for that. Yep. Yeah. You know? Yep. Because financial guys won't always give yeah. you credit for that. Yeah. Um, so you should give yourself credit for that. Absolutely. So one of the things that I've seen in the companies and my my friends who have who have really gone the distance they've like further more than where we took it you know we got to a certain point sold it but there's you know friends who have gone they they become public companies multi thousand person companies they all find a way that they get comfortable with how things are going you know like oftentimes there's this long period in the beginning you know it could be a decade or even more where people are like everything's going badly it's stressful you're kind of stressed out all the time. Like you said earlier, you're seeing the the negative a lot and, and trying to fix it, which is a good feedback loop, but it's also like really tough on the entrepreneur. And what I see is like they shift eventually to, you know, they're like in their power. They're, you know, maybe focused on the negative, but it's not affect their ego is no longer as tied yeah. to like what's happening in the day to day with the company. And those are the friends of mine who have, you know, they've really continued building public companies, 20, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, hundred billion dollar companies. Like, do you think you've been able to make that transition? And like, what were the ways that you, if so, like, how did you do it? Yeah. So I think when we went public, it was a major validating yeah. moment for everybody. And I think what it really cemented for me is if you get a bunch of people together and you get them to believe that they can basically accomplish anything kind of turns out they can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so we went public. A bunch of things in my day-to-day -day changed. Um, but it was in this incredible validating moment for us. Yeah. And it also gave me an opportunity. And I think the big thing here and where like ego gets a little like your, your point about when your ego isn't so attached to what's going bad in the company, yeah. when you're able to sort of separate that a lot of that pressure gets yeah. taken off. You find new pressure to bring in, but that big one goes away. But when when we went public and had like, you know, we had two, three, four quarters that we were, we like did very well, you learn to trust your team yeah. in a pretty big way. And then you learn to trust your team. I think what I what I'm saying is kind of what I said earlier, which is, you believe that your team is doing the very best in class work and that 
whatever problems or issues you're facing, they are not something that some other person would have come in and not fell victim to. Yeah. It's nothing you you didn't like hire wrong or not focus on the right things, but that this whack-a-mole game like is always going to happen. Yeah. And then you get comfortable with two things. I've gotten comfortable with two things. One, we've instrumented the business from a data and feedback perspective where we can see things that are going wrong way sooner than just about any other company. So we make an acquisition. We expect it to hit the ground running and it doesn't. We know right away, one week in, we go, okay, that doesn't look right. Two weeks in, we go, okay, that really doesn't look right. Three weeks in, we're making changes. Yeah. And so it's two things. One, is the business instrumented in a way that I'm never going to be surprised? Yeah. And that takes a big concern away, right? Like I can see what the metrics are all over the business. No one's going to catch me off guard. And when something is going poorly, have I hired the leaders in all of the roles who are going to act quickly? They're not going to see this for three weeks and then six weeks and then nine weeks and just be like fine with it. They're going to look, they're going to know all eyes are on it. The whole company expects you to act quickly when something's going wrong. So really believing that I have the data to understand the business and then I have leaders who are going to act quickly gives me all sorts of relief. Yeah, there's kind of like a like a surrender almost or like trust. Like you yeah. have set up a system, hired the right people, instrumented the way where they, they are able to create feedback loops and then you just have to trust that it's gonna work. That it's gonna know? work, that yeah. they're gonna take action. Yeah. Because that's the other piece. Like you can give me a bunch of data that tells me things are messed up. If my team's not willing to take action to change things as a result and go like, oh, we got that one wrong. Yeah. Like we, we made a couple acquisitions, you know, made an acquisition, made some decisions about the leadership at that acquisition and then realized three weeks in, like that was not the right decision. We missed that one. Yeah. And nobody around the table wants to prove they're right anymore. you know <laughs> yeah. like everyone just wants to get it right yeah and so there's no ego in going like oh yeah yep yep the data says it we screwed that up and it totally makes sense and so let's go let's go fix it as fast as possible it's you know you said trust and surrender yeah which like when you said that my first thought is like it is a little bit like surrender yeah um but a positive phrase for surrender is just trust yeah like I'm not I'm not a passive participant. I am an active participant, but I just trust that like everybody's looking at the same things and everybody's going to act in the same way. And getting that type of alignment from the people who work for you is endlessly valuable. Yeah. That's great. I mean, I, I love that you've been able to get there, you know. Yes. It's like so hard to like build a team that really where you have that. Totally. And look, I think interestingly in the first few years of the business, it was a lot of just when you start a company and especially if you're bootstrapping it, it's not like you have the dollars to go get experienced people. So you're just getting kind of like anybody who comes through your doors, they tend to not be experienced. And then it's your job to like coach them and enable them and train them so that they can actually help you grow a business. And so in the early years, It was a lot of, hey, do this, hey, do that, hey, do this, hey, do that. And they would go like, yep, we're going to go do this. And what it transitioned to was you got to a point where the business was big enough that you could start bringing in really talented people or those people grew into very talented people. And then they could run those parts of the organization kind of without you. Now, like you're going to give input and get alignment and all of that. But once you get alignment on the high level priorities, they're really able to run that business way better than you can. Yeah. And once you really like believe that, the business gets a lot of momentum. That's incredible. Yeah. Cool. That's basically what I had. Any uh, final thoughts or advice Did to entrepreneurs? Go? Did we go an hour? It's about. Uh, <laughs> it's been about fifty minutes wow. so far. Yeah. Okay. Cool. That was that's an amazing story. So tell me some yeah final thoughts for the you know audience of entrepreneurs out there. Yeah. So I think some final thoughts. It is hard. Yeah. Like it is hard. There was a a post that I read that said 
are CEOs of like fast growing software companies, are they happy? (laughs) (laughs) And you know, I read it and I went like, I couldn't like tell you definitively, like I'm really like happy doing this. I am challenged every day. The work is hard. Um, and I wouldn't want to be doing anything else. Yeah. But the post said, it's just so fast and there's so much pressure that you never really get to a place in the business where you're just actually like happy. Yeah. There are moments, right? Like, you know, you can unwind on a vacation or you figure out how to blend in time for yourself that gives you like the sort of the mindfulness to to continue doing it. But it is hard. There's no sugarcoating how hard it is to run the business, the pressures, the expectations from your team and from your investors. And, you know, if you're growing a business, it just means that there's a new set of investors who are consistently coming into your business who have a bigger vision for the thing that you just delivered. Yeah. (laughs) So like you bring in one set of investors, they go like, hey, it would be really wonderful if you got the business to this stage. And then you get there and new investors come in and they go like, well, actually it'd be really wonderful if you got the business to this stage. So you're constantly like trying to get it to a new place, often places that you didn't think you could get to two years earlier. Yeah. And so that cycle never ends if you're growing your company. And so get comfortable with the fact that it's going to be hard. That is the game. Um, you're going to have to constantly learn and challenge yourself. And none of that is like very easy for yeah. anybody. It's like type two fun, right? It's something yes, that's totally, it's not, ha- it's not fun while you're doing it. It's fun kind of when you think about it afterwards. A hundred percent. It's type two fun is yeah. the best way to describe it. I was, when you said, uh, you know, are you happy? I was thinking like of all the CEOs of all of the companies I know, like from small to big, I couldn't think of a single one where I'm like, this guy's happy because of his job, right? Yep. Or her job. They're happy. They might be happy in their lives, but like the jobs themselves, I think are very, very challenging. Like it's always something new. There's always something going wrong that you need to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. No matter where you're at. It's like running a marathon. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you want to run multiple marathons back to back to back to back. You get that moment where you get to like rest in between marathons <laughs> yeah. and look back on how cool the last marathon was, but there yeah. is another marathon in front of you and you don't really forget that you have another marathon coming up. Yeah. I think it can be very fulfilling, right? Yes, very fulfilling. Very fulfilling. Yeah. It's very, it's the most fulfilling thing ever. Like I feel more fulfilled than I've ever felt in my life, yeah. but there is a gap between fulfillment and happiness. Yeah. Amazing. All right, Henry, thank you so much for for coming in. This is a great conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Love it. All right, guys, that was the conversation. I hope you all enjoyed it. If you like this episode, drop us a rating and comment on iTunes, and you can check out all my other content at justincon.com. I will see you all next week.